Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Dr. Chelsea Slotten. We are joined today by Liz Gwynlin, who's going to tell us about her research and writing about the amazing trailblazer Sally Benford. Liz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you both for having me. I'm really excited to talk about Sally and and just to be on a podcast for the first time. (laughs) We are so excited to have you and to talk about Sally Benford. So it's a win-win all around. So before we get into the wonderful world that is Sally Benford, um, could you tell us and the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am a zooarchaeologist, uh, which means I study animal bones, um, and I am based at the University of York in England. Uh, And my current work, I'm a PhD student, so I'm part of this big training network called a Marie Skodlowska Curie ITN, or Innovative Training Network. And basically it means I am one of 15 PhD students who all work collaboratively together on a bunch of really cool intersecting projects that all really focus on the use of marine creatures in the human past. We have people we have people working on fish, you know, I work on the Atlantic salmon. We also have people working on mammals like dolphins uh, and whales. We also have people working on sea turtles. So it's just a really cool interdisciplinary program. And my research focuses on the exploitation or use of Atlantic salmon during the medieval period in the North Sea Basin area. So in Northwestern Europe, all of the countries that are all around the North Sea, which is this big body of water in Northwestern Europe, um, between England and and the Netherlands and Germany and everything. I'm interested in how people used salmon, Atlantic salmon in the medieval period. Oh, that's very cool. You're going to have to come back on the podcast just to talk about your PhD dissertation information and um, your research after that, because that sounds really cool. Because honestly, like 18 months when I theoretically defend my, have my vibe. (laughs) Excellent. Oh, no, that would be wonderful. Because I I don't, honestly, I don't know enough about um, archaeology, and I could always learn more. I mean, we could all always learn more. But I'm just like brought back to a conversation we had with um, Alex Fitzpatrick about her work, um, particularly talking about how much she hates fish bones. So I just have to ask. (laughs) It's a running joke. Yeah. (laughs) So if you ever see me and Alex and Hannah Peugeot and various other people interact on Twitter, we're always just screaming about hating fish bones. But like... (laughs) I literally am doing a whole PhD on fishbone. <laughs> and my supervisors follow me on Twitter and they see this all the time. Um, and I actually had, it was really funny. I had like the, I, I said this in my like first week of, you know, my PhD, I jokingly said to like my colleague, like, oh my God, I hate fish. And she is a trained ichthyologist and biologist and was just like, what? Why? Why are you doing a PhD on fish? And I was just like, oh, no, actually, sorry. No, like I do like them. They're fine. It's just like every zooarchaeologist hates them because they're they're so tiny. They're so tiny. They're so different from mammal bones and bird bones. So when you're looking at mammals and birds, mammals all have the same body plan, pretty much. They all look the same. Mm -hmm. They have the same paired limbs. They have all this stuff. Birds, a little bit wonkier and they're lighter. And then they're mostly the same as well. A um, little bit more variation in birds. Uh, fish are just a nightmare uh, when trying to standardize anything. 
<laughs> and also because you do have fish that are, are cartilaginous. So oh. you just lose so much of the skeleton. Mm-hmm, um, right. You're working with less bones. It, it, it's actually interesting, contradictory thing because you simultaneously have way too many of some bones. Like if you're working on herring and all you have are vertebra, those don't tell you anything. (laughs) But then you have, you know, very few cranial bones at all, which can tell you a lot more information. So it's, they're, they're tricky. And most people don't willingly choose to become fish specialists. (laughs) Okay. That's hilarious. But hey, I'm sure there's a lot of fun things about fish that we can learn more about at some point, which I Oh, absolutely. Uh, But to get into our topic for today, and I think this is true for, um, sadly, for a lot of people that they've heard this quote, I'm not here to cook, I'm here to dig. And that is Sally Benford's famous quote. But beyond that, know very little bit, uh, very, very little bit about her. And I know that's true for me. i knew she was married to Lewis Benford, but that's pretty much it. Um, Chelsea, what about you? Yeah, I can't say that I I knew particularly um, much about her. I had, of course, heard the quote. um, And then actually kind of before we started recording, Liz said something that I didn't realize. And I like fell down a bit of a, a research hole while Emily was doing the whole spiel about what the podcast is and how we record and all the technicals. Um, so yeah, I, I really don't know that much about her and I'm excited to learn more. Me too. So Liz, with I mean, it's like, where to start? Like who was Sally Benford and what drew you to her? Sure. So um, I guess I'll kind of go with like basics biography first. Sure. Sally, um, Sally was born Sa- Sally Rosen um, to Jewish parents. Uh, she was born in Brooklyn in 1924, um, and she is or she was a archaeologist, anthropologist, sex educator, activist, artist, uh, actress, voice actress—all these amazing things. All the um, things. She had a long and wonderful life um and one of the major so she um she died in 1994 um one of the major resources about her life is from an interview with janet Klinger, who was a biographer from um san francisco bay area um and she had interviewed there's a fantastic um book which i actually bought it's out of print um it's called our elders six bay area life stories and it's an interview with six kind of older queer people in um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Sally was queer. Um, and oh. so it's kind of like a an interview with all of these people. And Sally happens to be one of them. And that's kind of one of the major sources about her life. Mm-hmm. So kind of a lot of the biographical stuff that I reference is from the Janet Klinger article. So I just want to, or the Janet Klinger interview. So we'll just head that up there. Excellent. Um, we can link to that for sure in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's published in part on um, Susie Bright's blog. So Susie Bright, another fascinating person was a friend of Sally um, is a lesbian activist and writer and just all around amazing, cool person um, who I have been in email contact with and I'm very giddy about. Um, <laughs> That's cool. And yeah. So part of that, that interview is reproduced on her website. So you can read most of it on there. There's just a few bits that are still in, in the book. Um, but yeah, so Sally kind of grew up in, in Brooklyn, um, 
you know, great, great place to grow up. My mom is from Brooklyn, so I have a soft spot for people from there. Um, and she was just briefly kind of going through her early life. You know, she was always kind of called like a class troublemaker by, um, you know, her or like her friends. She was, you know, <laughs> she was she didn't take a lot of she didn't take a lot of crap. She she says in the interview with Janet Klinger, I have a very low tolerance for bullshit and lies. <laughs> and I feel like that's something we can all live by. <laughs> um, so she, you know, had a lot of conflict with her parents. She, one thing that has really just always fascinated me is how explicitly dedicated she was to just kind of being an overall good person from an early age. She, you know, before the idea of like being explicitly anti-racist was a thing, she was just doing that. Um because she, you know, growing up, she she said that she couldn't reconcile her parents' anger with anti-Semitism in Germany with their racism against people of color. So she was like, why are we doing this? Why why would we, you know, how can you say that, you know, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is bad and then turn around and say racial slurs to Black mm-hmm. people? So th- this, like, growing up really informed who she was. That's why I kind of focus on it quite a bit when I talk about her. Mm-hmm. Growing up as, you know, a fairly privileged young woman in Brooklyn, but also, you know, Jewish as well. So not in, in the 1920s and 30s, not a great time to be Jewish, most of the world over. Um, and so um, she eventually, you know, she kind of grew up, went to school. She eventually, she first went to Vassar. Um, and I mentioned this because her mom wanted her to go to Vassar because it would improve their like social status to have a daughter at one of the seven sisters colleges um, Vassar is a member of this network of colleges in um, New, the New England Northeast area, which are called the Seven, Sithir, Seven Sisters, huh. and they're the historically women's colleges, which are very prestigious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not all Northeast. It's, it includes Bryn Mawr as well. But Vassar is a, is a wonderful school, but it was not for Sally. And I mention this because <laughs> Vassar is in Poughkeepsie, New York. I also spent four months at a school in Poughkeepsie, New York that I hated and then left. <laughs> so I get that feeling. I understand the vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, it wasn't Vassar. I was at Marist, but it was a bad, bad vibe all around. <laughs> like, this is not for me. Yeah. So I, I, I just, there's just some fun things that kind of mirror, like, mm-hmm. I also went to, to Poughkeepsie for four months and hated it. <laughs> so there's like that kinship there. Um yeah, so she she dropped out. She worked for a while, uh, worked in New York. And then what caused her to move towards academia again was, um, so Robert Hutchins, who I'm not sure what his position was at the University of Chicago. I think he was a dean. Um, he was trying to incorporate classics into kind of this broad general education undergraduate degree that they had at, at Chicago at the time. And she was very intrigued by that. So she wrote to them, took the entrance exam and got in and moved to Chicago in 1945. She, um, you know, was 21 at the beginning of that degree. She went through, was doing her undergrad. She got married for the first time. Um, she famously said, I didn't really want a husband. I just wanted a baby. Um, <laughs> which like you do, you girl, you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, Exactly. Um, so she, um, you know, so she kind of had this like early undergraduate experience where she was young, had a young marriage, young mother, her marriage, unfortunately broke down. Um, but she just kind of moved on. She, you know, by the age of 26, she had her undergrad degree, 
single mother living in Chicago being awesome in the 19 late 1940s early 50s that's pretty um, big for that time frame as a single yeah. mother in academia it's like that's kind of that's even frowned upon still today in in some circles so exactly in the 40s exactly and to yeah no and to have just kind of like moved on her own to chicago as a young unmarried woman um her father did not like that fact um and it, it caused a lot of rifts with her parents um but yeah, she was, you know, really determined. She really enjoyed research. And in 1956, you know, sing, as a single mother, um, so she, well, actually, no, sorry, I missed, there was another marriage in between there. <laughs> um, she's a bit of, she's a bit of a, a, a jump from one relationship to another person, which I can respect in some ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, she, she met and married another man, um, whose surname was Shanfield. I actually don't know what his first name was. Um, but I know it was Shanfield cause she was publishing under the name of Shanfield at the time. Um, so there's like one or two articles that are attributed to Sally Shanfield, um, okay. as opposed to Sally Rosen or Sally Binford. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of by the time we hit like 1956 and she's 32, she, I, I think she was already divorced from the second guy. Um, she started her PhD, um, at the university of Chicago and it was, it was going to be an anthropology, um, and archeology. span This was of course still when anthro and archeology span were kind of, kind of the same thing. Um, and, but this was at this exciting time in the fifties when the university of Chicago was really a hot place to be in terms of archeological development. Um, there were a lot of people there who were, trying new ideas out, who were working on new theoretical approaches, who were kind of getting into fights with people around the world about how we should <laughs> interpret things. It was it was a happening place to be. And just for context for um, our listeners, this is when like it's thought that archaeology became more of like scientific in terms of like scientific approaches to archaeology as opposed to that's old. You know, there's actually yeah, exactly that type of thing. Yeah. This 1950s in North America in, at the University of Chicago was like the place to define yourself within archaeology. Um, and so she started her Ph.D. Uh, in her words, the chairman was a misogynistic little son of a bitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sally did not mince words. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that about her. Um, basically, like at he was really angry at the fact that she was a woman, basically. <laughs> um, like at the opening tea for graduate students, he made like all these dismissive remarks about how, oh, this is a very professional department, but I guess we always get some dilettante housewives. <laughs> and like she she said to Janet Klinger, um, if ever my feminist conscience was forged, it was during the experience of being a grad student in the anthro department at University of Chicago. That is where, that is what really just drove her into, it, it drives you to feminism, just. Um, so she she was obviously not well liked by mere fact of her gender uh, in this department, um, which unfortunately some people can still relate to. Yep. Uh, uh, very unfortunately. Too many and, people. Yeah. And so at this time she was really really interested in prehistory, but she kind of was butting heads with the head of the old world department. Um, he kind of, you know, 
he just wanted her to do like a library thesis, which basically means you sit and do research and kind of just write a big review paper. Um, he didn't really think she was capable of, of doing uh, much more complex work. And the graduate faculty at the time was entirely men. Um, they'd never hired a woman at the department. So she was very much alone. Um, and this actually right at the beginning of this degree was when her, her second husband divorced her. He accused her of being in grad school only to have affairs on the side. Um, so like you'd only want to go to school because you want to, you know, screw around, which is just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that is how she started her PhD. (laughs) Um, And she just, people were just explicitly against her. Like her PhD advisor outright told her that, that people did not like her because of her social life and the way she dressed. Um, Because. I saw that. She's like, you wear makeup and tight sweaters. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's what the guy, that's what her supervisor said to her. Um, And the social life aspect was that she associated with people who were not white and not straight. (laughs) That was people because she lived on the South side of Chicago and she associated with her neighbors and the South side of Chicago at the time was a historically black neighborhood. And she didn't have a problem with that, but everybody at the university of Chicago did. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was just kind of not a very supportive environment. People were not taking her seriously. Um, and she said that, that when she did get her PhD, the only person who wasn't actually shocked was her advisor who grew to like support her and be very supportive of her over the years. Cause I think he kind of got a, a smack in the face by just how prolific and, and stubborn she was and brilliant, um, in sure terms of like, Whoa, exactly. Yeah. Um, she was, you know, nearly prevented from continuing her PhD early on. Um, she passed her qualifying exams, but um, a professor she believe deliberately misfiled her information as a terminal master's, not a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have prevented her from continuing, but they caught it in time. Oh my God. So like, even if that was a mistake, like there's so many things going on at this time. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so this is, you know, the late 1950s, she's doing her early PhD work. You know, it's, you're taking classes, you're doing your quals, you're going to do field work. This is when she first went to France, um, and this is important for some later later uh, things within um, kind of the field of archaeology that she starts developing. And in France, she worked under a site director. I believe it was at Abri Patel, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said to Janet Klinger in this interview, she said he didn't like women, didn't like Jews, and didn't believe in divorce. So <laughs> those were. <laughs> Those are the three strikes against her. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's, that's where that famous exchange that I'm not here to cook. I'm here to dig happened um, because she, this site director wanted her to leave the site at 10 AM every day to go help his wife cook lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause they were all there from like 6 AM and he was like, you can go leave and cook lunch with my wife so that we can all have a good lunch. She said, men no. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she might have because she spoke French. So that also is another important thing later. Because someone <laughs> famously does not speak or read French. Oh, yes, uh, that is an important fact. And actually, this is a perfect 
um, stopping point to stop at the quote, um, for we are at our 20 minute break and it's an excellent spot. We've got her early history and then we're going to, we can dig into more of the, her meeting of other folks and then like her career is just so prolific and we can really get into it more after the break. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. We are here with Liz Quinlan, and we are discussing the wonderful Sally Benford and about her work. And in the first segment, we learned a little bit about her early history, a little bit about her career. And at the end, we were just getting into that wonderful quote about how she was here to dig, not to cook. And now we're going to learn a little bit more about her career at this French dig and how things just kind of kept taking off from there and her meeting of a specific individual. (laughs) Yes. Take Um, it away. Yeah. So, you know, this was France, early 1960s. This was um, when she met Francois Bourdais um, and his wife, um, uh, Dan de Sombo. I think it's Deanne. They were all, both working in France as well. Um, so Francois was a very well-known um, Paleolithic archaeologist of the time, and they were working on similar areas. And she just became great friends with with the Bourdais, um, you know, the couple. And um, so this is important because uh, Francois Bourdais becomes uh, a key figure in what is called um, the 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 Binford Bourdais debate, which is about um, methods of interpretation in processual archaeology. So processual archaeology is to kind of boil it down to a, a, a small explanation. It's the um, application of kind of rigid scientific processes to archaeological inquiry, and the idea is that um, you want to apply, you know, these, this rigorous use of the scientific method in order to kind of get past these, these limits that are within the cultural material and learn something about how people used artifacts. So that's the the broad strokes, what processual archaeology was. Excellent description. And, and famously we learned later, it just, it doesn't really include anybody, you know, like women, (laughs) children, the elderly, human agency, Anything outside of the stereotypical manhunter woman gatherer. Yeah, basically. Um, so yeah, so really, you know, be, so we're getting into this this headspace as Sally. Um, uh, she's having these great discussions with Francois and, and Dan. Um, and so she finished her, her PhD in 1962. And it actually itself was, was a, um, a great work. Um, she was working on the geological and geographic history of the Sahara. Um, look, and she essentially proved that the desert formations of the Sahara were very recent late Pleistocene. Um, so um, a, a much more recent time period than were originally thought. And she showed that there had actually been these lakes and rivers near where early humans lived. Um, and so this essentially worked to disprove a lot of racist theory about at the time um, that claimed that African races supposedly were different from white races or Caucasian races. 
and that you know the Sahara would have blocked the 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 movement out of Africa. Um, oh, wow. And so it was really one of a key set of works that other people were working on this at the same time, of course, but just saying, listen, you know, Louis Leakey, who, who is a, um, a paleoanthropologist who um, kind of popularized some of this, this theory about how people, how humans could have moved in and out of different areas. Um, this work was just like, actually the Sahara is a relatively new development and there were definitely people living in these areas beforehand and could have traveled through these areas. Wow, that sounds like so, such a formative work. Why don't yeah. we know about it? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it was again. It, it turned into this kind of library thesis, like I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. It just like review, and it was filed away in the archives of the University of Chicago, and just kind of left there. Mm-hmm. Um, which unfortunately happens to not all of us like to think about it, but a lot of our PhD theses. So I know my <laughs> MA thesis is somewhere in a library gathering dust. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, so this kind of marks the period when Sally transfers from, as she says, her focus from stones and bones, um, <laughs> uh, or rather from, from deserts to stones and bones. Um, and, you know, she was digging in France, then in Israel, all these great things. And this was the same time around 1961, 1962, that Lewis Binford arrived at Chicago. Um, so Lewis Binford was a uh, archaeologist and anthropologist. Um, Sally called him the boy wonder. He was a young, upstart, brash guy doing work Um at, uh, he was hired as a faculty member, but he was still finishing his PhD. So he was seven years younger than her. Their offices were right next to each other. She was trying to finish her PhD. He was a faculty member. So kind of had this like institutional seniority over her, but also was still desperately trying to finish his PhD at the same time. Um, And basically he, he pursued her right from the beginning. Um, And she was not interested (laughs) at all. Um, she, she told Janet Klinger that like, she was just not having it. And it, especially because they were both working next to each other and working at the same time. And because she was trying to finish her PhD, she just didn't want any part of it. Um, so within, once she finishes the PhD, uh, they start kind of a, a relationship a little bit. They, they go to dig together. Um, he, she joined a dig in Southern Illinois that he was running um, and that's when they kind of started a relationship, both a, you know, a sexual one and a, and, and a romantic one. She helped him finish his PhD thesis because <laughs> um, he, he needed to pass a French exam to, to do this PhD and he couldn't pass it. Um, he took it multiple times, I think. And basically, like, she kind of took it for him in absentia because oh, he was working at sites. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's a major thing. <laughs> Um, and they progressed very quickly with their relationship because Lou was up for tenure at Chicago and he thought it would not look good um, living in sin with Sally. Uh, <laughs> so he basically was like, you got to marry me. <laughs> and she was like, okay. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and she said, so in her words to, to Janet Klinger, she says, I will marry you for the sake of your tenure, but I'll tell you now, this is not going to be a permanent deal because I know myself well enough to know that marriage is not my thing. Well, it sounds like a, a permanent thing that happened during their marriage was her constantly uh, kind of doing his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, she she says, and of course, a lot of this, I will caveat all of this with like some of this is hearsay. And we can't prove any of this. Allegedly. And please don't assume Allegedly. the estate of Lewis Binford. Um, <laughs> that's... Put lots of quotes and allegedly around this section. <laughs> yes, allegedly. Um, <laughs> Sally said herself um, in this Klinger article uh, interview that her job in the marriage became to, quote, translate what Lou wrote into English. Um <laughs> That, you know, they had, they were a professional couple, um, you know, they, they had complementary skills, they brought different um, ideas. And this was this formation of this working relationship that led to the birth of the new archaeology. So the new archaeology, capital N, capital A, um, is a, a kind of subset of processional archaeology. It's focused within North America, mostly. And it was really focused around Lou Binford, Sally Binford, their pals, um, multiple people. And it, it centered on kind of developments that came out of this book called New Perspectives in Archaeology. Um, and it, it became jokingly called the New Archaeology by like others who were being derisive about it. But then it kind of stuck and that was the name. Um, so they were very focused on looking about ecology of past societies, technology, economic basis um, you know, and Colin Renfrew was, was, uh, um, involved in this as well. He so writes all the textbooks archaeolog- for archaeology. Yeah. He's the guy who writes If you all take an intro to archaeology class, he wrote the textbook. Exactly. Renfrew and um, and so, <laughs> yeah. So Lewis Binford and Sally Binford, um, co-edited this book, New Perspectives in Archaeology, uh, and there was just a lot of, you know, really well-known people published a chapter in that book. And this was just kind of their manifesto. The work really focuses on, like I said, kind of looking at the idea of almost environmental determinism. You know, how your environment influences how a culture is going to come about um, and how people's interactions with their environment follow certain rules and, and rigid, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word, um, structures. Uh, so it's very much focused on, on kind of, kind of trying to map culture onto a, a really easy to interpret framework. Unfortunately it does not work all the time. Exactly. <laughs> but I think the thing about new archeology, span it provides this for other theories to happen essentially like oh absolutely like we wouldn't have we wouldn't like i'm a pretty hardcore processual plus archaeologist and we don't need to get into a diatribe about theory even though i love archaeological theory but uh i have a lot of criticisms about new archaeology but we wouldn't be where we are today Mm. without new archaeology but the thing i want to note what i find very interesting i graduated college in 2008 so it's not like a bajillion years ago never once when learning about new archaeology and i went to a school that was very hardcore this approach and like 
everything. Mm-hmm. Like Benford was a god. He was the father of archaeology and how we do it. Never once was Sally Benford mentioned. Really, no women were ever mm-hmm. mentioned. Did you go to UNM by any chance? Nope. But <laughs> no, <laughs> I went to a small liberal arts college. Um, but what's just very interesting is just like, and I've noticed this from a lot of other programs from um, the East Coast um, with a very hardcore processual approach. Sally Benford is never mentioned. And there's a lot of negative talk about any other theoretical approach, even though Hodder's pretty great. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. That was my diatribe, yeah. but I just, it's, it really bugs me that Sally was never mentioned. Yeah. Um, and especially because in so new perspectives in archaeology, um, this this edited book that that they co-edited together, um, which it includes it's it's fascinating when you look at the chapter list of who was published in this book, mm-hmm. because you have James Dietz, who's the father oh, wow. of historical archaeology. You um, you have um, William Longacre and James Ayers. You've got, um, you know, Howard D. Winters mm-hmm. and. Ken Flannery and Michael Poe publishing together, um, which is a bit wild. So (laughs) there's just, there's just so many different people coming from all these different areas. And, and it, you know, as many books come, it grew out of a a presentation at a conference. Um, And what's really interesting is that Sally's contribution to this book, other than obviously editing it and and helping to write, you know, the kind of um, introduction, um, her article or her chapter was called variability and change in the near eastern mysterian of Levalois facies hmm. which means she was looking at at how different um uh stone tools changed in um the near east so she was mostly looking at israel um at Levalois um type so those are a type of um of uh, stone tools um so she was this the the reason that this article or this chapter is really important and really, really cool is that in 19, when was it? 19, it was published in 1968. She was doing the analysis in 66 and 60, uh, in 66. Um, she did the first ever computer analysis of, um, stone tool typologies, uh, programming using actual programming, like plugging into things and you know not running it through r <laughs> which That's is what i do really cool yeah it was like the first computer-aided statistical analysis of stone tool typologies and it's just so cool um and it gets kind of lost in this it sounds like a lot <laughs> of her research kind of gets lost along the way even though it sounds like she throughout her career was a very prolific writer awesome. yeah yeah yeah, I mean, um, there, yeah, there was a, a lot of stuff. So to basically, um, to kind of speed through a little bit more of, of their relationship, because there's so much I could talk about and I could sit here for like four hours, but I'm trying to be cognizant of time. <laughs> Understandable. Um, Lou got denied tenure at Chicago, wah, wah. Um, and he got big, big mad about it and moved to California. Um, and they were working at, uh, I think it was UCLA and UC Santa Barbara. Um, Sally did not have a good time at UC Santa Barbara. The, um, the Dean of UC Santa Barbara was openly anti-Semitic. Oh my God. Um, and there was a pact between the chairman and the board not to hire Jews. They didn't know Sally was Jewish. Um, and she began, this is when she began signing and publishing as Sally Rosen Binford. 
um, to signal that she was Jewish. And she also started speaking in Yiddish in faculty meetings. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> On so many to levels. Just, to just rub it in their face. Um, she was also urged to recruit people with expertise in African and Southwest um, native archaeology. And, you know, this was at the time when in an anthropology department, you just called up your buddy and said, hey, we got a job. And <laughs> like that was how people were hired. Yeah. Um, she only proposed people of color for the job. Um, Alphonse Ortiz, who was Tewa, um, and Bill Shack, who was Black, who were two of the people that she put forward for jobs. Neither of them got them. Um, but she refused to put any more random white people forward. So she was really hated in that department. Lou, because everyone hated Sally, Lou started getting nervous about getting tenure there. So they switched down to UCLA from UC Santa Barbara. And at this time, it was like 1967. And Sally Sally said to, to Janet Klinger that at the time, she really knew that their marriage was through, but they were so intertwined and interconnected in the field of archaeology mm-hmm. that she wasn't going to be able to just like divorce and then keep working the way she wanted to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she started trying to kind of set up her own work. She applied for an NSF grant to work in the Near East. Um, and so, cause she was like, I'm going to set up my own work, set up my projects so that I can get a divorce and, and move forward. But Lou threatened to leave her immediately, uh, if she went to work on this NF- NSF grant, which would just destabilize everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she turned it down. <sighs> And around this time, she also reported um, in in 1966, 1966 and 1967 is allegedly when Lou Binford became physically abusive to Sally. Um, She did file a police report about assault uh, in 1967 to the LAPD. But unfortunately, it was 1967 and it was the LAPD. So it was kind of laughed off um, and nothing came of it. So it's also my understanding about this time, allegedly, that he was a yeah. drunk and therefore she did most of his work. Yes, um, he was very famously a drunk. Um, and he she actually mentioned that when he was at Chicago, he would show up to her house drunk um, when he was per- when he was pursuing her before they had started their relationship. Um, so, yeah, he was, you know, an alcoholic, I assume, um, which is obviously a terrible disease to deal with, um, but it can have horrifying consequences for people who are in a relationship with them. Um, So this was late 1960s. Lou got denied for tenure again at, um, he really did not make friends well. Oh yeah. If you read the Um, um, review letters back and forth between Benford and Hodder, they're absolutely hilarious because Hodder's like, I do not agree with you, sir. And then Benford's like, I hate you. And yeah. Yeah. how dare you not worship the ground i walk on so it just boggles exactly. my mind how many people are like benford was the best thing ever since sliced bread i'm like how how, how? do um, you exactly. actually know anything about this person yeah so he basically um so at this time he like jumped down to albuquerque and that's where he he found people who loved him um <laughs> nothing against you oh that's why you that's asked morning. me <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, UNM loves Binford. Uh, cause he like founded their department basically. Mm. I mean, they were there, but he put them on the map. Yeah. Um, they have like a fun they have all sorts of um 
scholarships in his name and like everything's named after him and mm, yeah gotcha. so they both moved to albuquerque uh where actually she left a faculty job at ucla oh, wow. to get a one-year short-term teaching contract at albuquerque oh. um and she was like i think i'm done so after that, that like after that, she was like, okay, I'm just gonna leave. Um, and she she relayed to Janet Klinger in, in her interview that um, she you know she started kind of withdrawing from him, and he she alleges got you know crazier and more violent. He was hospitalized multiple times um, because he was just drunkenly hallucinating. Um, he was having seizures, but they may not have been actual real seizures. Mm-hmm. Like there was, it was just incredibly turbulent for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally he left for field work in 1969 in the summer, which that's when he famously went to go start doing his Nunami archaeology work. He left to go do that field work and she finished teaching her classes, put all of her stuff in storage, took the dog and left. <laughs> um, Good. So yeah, she, she got out yeah. of Dutch. Um, that was... But the thing is, doing that meant that she had just completely cut herself off from archaeology mm-hmm. because, unfortunately, Lou was going to be seen as the victim in this. Mm-hmm. Um, so she spent, you know, a lot of her time traveling, visiting friends on the East Coast. She kind of, you know, she worked in anthropology for a little bit, teaching some kind of, you know, cultural anthropology courses at some small um, community colleges. And... Uh, she finally made it back out to the West Coast, um, and that's where she really figured out that she she wanted to leave anthropology and academia because she just she was being prevented from being hired places. No one would take her seriously um, because allegedly Lou was bad mouthing her to everybody. And so she said that that what kind of helped her kind of come to this resolution was that while she was out in the West Coast, she. She spent a lot of time walking her dog, smoked a lot of dope, <laughs> took acid, took mescaline, experimented with psychedelics, had a great time, and then kind of realized, I don't think I'm going to be able to recover this career. Oh, um, so, yeah. That's so painfully unfair. But, I mean, for the, the time and what we know now about that relationship and everything, it's sadly unsurprising. But... That happens even today, though. Yeah. It definitely does. Yeah. But on the on Silver Lining, at least we're all learning more and more about her now and from wonderful people like yourself, Liz. And uh, after the break, we will discuss more about Sally, her legacy, and then the wonderful work that Liz is doing to promote Sally and for all of us to really understand her legacy in archaeology. We'll be back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. In the last two segments, we've been learning about the amazing, truly amazing trailblazer, Sally Benford, and talking about her research and a little bit why we 
don't know enough about her and why her work really isn't taught as much as opposed to Lewis Benford's work. And as we're getting into this third segment, Liz is going to be telling us a little bit more about her legacy, um, her leaving anthropology and archaeology and having fun in California um, and get into Liz's future work. So Liz, take it away. Yeah. So, um, you know, after leaving Lou and kind of, you know, bumming around in a caravan for a little while trying to find herself, um, Sally actually ended up at um, this place called the Sandstone Foundation for Community Systems Research, which is also known as the Sandstone Retreat, uh, which is a infamous and amazing polyamorous living space. Um, where people could engage in non-monogamous marriage, sexual practices, communal living, and public nudity. So she basically went and lived in a sex commune for a couple years. Um, and it really fascinated her from, she says, like an anthropological perspective as well as a personal perspective. She was able to kind of investigate her sexual identity as well as really she loved, she said she loved the, um, she enjoyed the removal of symbolic meaning tied to clothing and the open networks of friendship and sexual interaction. So she really was kind of living her best life, both as a free spirit and an anthropologist. So this was kind of, this really set the tone for her, um, for the seventies and eighties for her, she and her good friend, Jeremy Slate, who was a, um, a actor and uh, activist and also her um, on and off again lover. Um, they were very good friends, but also were romantically and sexually involved as well. They spent a ton of time traveling and living. They had a motor home together. Um, they just kind of worked odd jobs. She would take, you know, she worked at um, Goddard college in Vermont teaching anthropology for like a, 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 like a year, I think. So she um, didn't totally leave kinda, anthropology, just kind of explored it back and forth from what it sounds like. Yeah, she really focused more towards anthropology and women's oh, nice. studies um, in this time. Um, so she taught anthropology and women's studies at Goddard College for a year. Um, and then this was actually after she she left San Francisco. She had been living in San Francisco and she actually had to leave because she was under surveillance by the <laughs> FBI. Because <laughs> oh. she, she was friends oh. with Dan Ellsberg and Tony Russo who leaked the Pentagon Papers in 1971. Oh. Um and she was asked to testify in front of a grand jury uh, and she refused to testify. And then she didn't, you know, she wasn't subpoenaed or anything. And so she just, she was like, all right, we're going to move to Vermont until things cool down. <laughs> I mean, that's so, a good decision. And Vermont yeah. is lovely. Yeah. She, so these are the kind of like scenes she was in. Um, and actually speaking of, of 1973, um, this I discovered literally the other day, which is just so cool. And I may or may not have spent $20 to get this shipped to me from California to <laughs> England. In 1973, Sally and Jeremy, who were in Los Angeles at the time, um, were part of a, there was a, a Los Angeles radio station was doing dramatic readings of the Watergate tape. What? And they, Sally and Jeremy read for a segment. <laughs> so there is a recording of Sally Binford uh, reading as, I think it's John Dean, the, the lawyer, and Jeremy Slate reading as, as Nixon. Um, wow. So <laughs> I have ordered the CD of it from an archive in California that has an archive 
uh, recording of this radio broadcast. And I am going to treasure it for the rest of my life. That's awesome. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> I need to find a CD player first. But, <laughs> but yeah, so this is the kind of stuff she was just doing, like, in the just 70s. Yeah. Um, and so life. she, in the late 70s, they kind of, she kind of ended up in San Francisco. Um, she was super involved in the gay and lesbian scenes in the area, both, you know, publicly and politically. Um, she was involved with Harvey Milk's oh, campaign. Wow in San Francisco, um, brief, briefly, not like, you know, really in it, but she was there. Um, and that's where she met and fell in love with Jan, um, who was a woman 20 years her junior. Um, and this was the end of her romantic and sexual relationship with Jeremy, but, but they were still very close friends. Um, so she kind of from then really identified mostly as a lesbian from then, um, but was still pretty fluid. You know, she was very involved in these women's conferences and and kind of these big meetups of, um, you know, historic lesbian meetups in Hawaii. And um, she and Jan kind of traveled all over the place. And this um, is important because it also influences one of the last articles that she wrote was in 1979. And she wrote the article Myths and Matriarchies, or I think it was a book chapter, actually. Um, and this is Sally wrote this. She questions the idea of matriarchal rule in ancient societies being tied to a mother, mother hmm. goddess. So to contextualize this at the time in the late seventies, um, the idea of kind of mother goddess worship in archeological sites like, you know, Chateau Hoyek or other really big sites in Turkey um, had been really seized on by mainstream mm -hmm. feminism, um, second wave feminists, you know, like mm -hmm. Gloria Steinem. So mm -hmm. as this kind of, idea that look the past was actually matriarchal and was correct and this is how we should return to living um and it was used as as an empowering thing which is you know wonderful and great but sally kind of had an issue with it as an anthropologist um she was a staunch feminist but she had an issue with she was frustrated with the focus on these kind of trivial issues of the past instead of working to improve mm, on the present interesting yeah she said you know She's, she said, focusing on these former glories of the matriarchy drains off a tremendous amount of energy and interest away from current problems, like reproductive rights, equal wages, equal work, medical care, and so forth. That's really cool, because, I mean, you see a big yeah. gap in that kind of thinking um, until it seems like more recently, and I could, I could be totally wrong in this, but it seems like a more recent development that archaeology and anthropology can be used as a tool to improve situations as opposed to like that concept of we only look backwards at and that archaeology and anthropology is political and it is these things like seems like she was on the forefront of that kind of thinking that we oh, see today absolutely she was explicitly political in her in her academic work and um just to briefly mention a few of the things i mean in 1965 she left um chicago to go march up mm. selma um, she, in the sixties and seventies, she was vocally anti-war, um, and she worked to place draft resisting students in Canadian universities, um, so that they could be out of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, and she refused to fail any of her male students, um, because if they were forced out of the university, they would be drafted. Oh, wow. So she really was like, this is, you know, my ethical choices are, I have to follow my ethics. And so this was like, really, it was just a thing that that was part of her identity as both a, an academic, an archaeologist, an anthropologist, and as a person. Um, 
And she was, of course, very politically active throughout her whole life. Um, and uh, there's just, I'm just trying to think there's, she, oh, she was involved with the Grey Panthers in 1978, which I didn't know about, but it was like an activism for aging oh. and like for like working on housing and medical care for, for um, you know, older communities. Um, and this is something that is very important because she had this anxiety about mm-hmm. aging. Um, so Sally died in 1994, but it was because she committed suicide. So which does not necessarily seem to track with what we think of as, as this kind of engaging, vibrant, wild lady. And it was not because she was depressed or suffering from anything. Um, she had long mentioned to many friends, and she mentions in this interview with, with Janet Klinger, that she's uncomfortable with the idea of her body falling apart. And she has this great anxiety about being dependent mm-hmm. on people. And she became like a big gym junkie. Uh, to combat that. Um, And she basically decided she did not want to turn 70. So just before her 70th birthday, she ended up um, taking, uh, she committed suicide via using pills um, and wrote notes. She wrote some letters to all of her friends and sent them. And uh, she signed the letters, toujours soixante which means forever 69. And... So, which is, I, I have to believe there was some kind of 69 joke as well. Um, like just cause of who I know who she, she was, mm-hmm. but yeah, like it was her final statement of I'm good. I'm checking out. I'm done. And I've lived my life the way I want to. And many, I mean, that's wow. incredible. I just personally find that heartbreaking in some respects, but I mean, mm. it sounds like she was always the kind of person like I'm going to do what's right for me and it may take some time, but I'm going to do what's best for me, my life, my situation. I'm going to do what I want to do up to the end. You know, like you see that with her research and you see that with her, um, despite constantly being told, no, you can't do that because you're a woman, because you're Jewish, because of X, Y, and Z. Nope. She, she kept plugging along and doing what was, what she wanted to do. Yeah, and I think it was a way of taking back control kind of in an ultimate way, um, which I have to respect it. It's, you know, it's maybe not necessarily something that I would do, but it is It's what she wanted to do. And her friends, Susie Bright and Jeremy Slater, Jeremy Slate have, you know, made statements. They're like, yep, this sounds like something she would do. Like this is, none of us were really surprised when, when they got the, the letters. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, to shift gears just a little bit. I mean, just, I can see there were many, many things within her career that I think a lot of women and those who may have a different life path than what is considered traditional can really identify with Sally Benford, her life. And I think it's wonderful that you've given presentations about her and that she's just had a very unique life. So on the flip side of that, I think it's incredibly ironic as someone that she had to do the work of somebody else that in some respects her work was stolen and that her voice was overshadowed by by men, that your own work was stolen <laughs> um, about Sally Benford. Uh, yes. Um, so I, I am currently in the process of... Um, 
I've got an article that's in unreview in review right now. Um, and it's part of, um, this, uh, edited collection of articles, um, that's in this broader volume called sins of our ancestors and of ourselves confronting archeological oh, legacies. Fantastic. And so, yeah. yeah, this was edited by April Beza, David Witt, Katie Kirikosian and Ryan. Uh, Where Wheeler. will it be available? Uh, it's going to be in um, the archaeological papers of the um, American Anthropological Very Association. Cool. Um, yeah, so we're currently, it's under review by the archaeological division awesome. right now. Um, and this, so this came out of a sponsored archaeology division panel at the SAAs in 2019, um, where we originally wrote our papers for. And then most of us who were in that now have continued to rework our papers into longer versions for for this edited collection well, and it seems like somebody um, liked your presentation so much they just took it <laughs> yeah um so i had done something which maybe was inadvisable and dumb um i had posted no, well it's not no, inadvisable no, or dumb you did a great thing this is the thing um in in 2019 our seminar it was a an electronic symposium so we had to post our articles online ahead of time so people could review them and we could have, because the, the idea was that we did five to seven minute presentations and then we had conversations. Um, unfortunately, Alice Kehoe took up quite a lot of our session. <laughs> Love her to pieces. She's wonderful. Alex Beck Kehoe is a wonderful, well-respected, well-revered archaeologist who sometimes talks for a very long time um, <laughs> and needs to be redirected a little bit. But yeah, our session was really great, but we had posted everything ahead of time. And so my article was up on the uh, SAA website. And then also I had posted the conference version of it on my academia.edu profile because I was like, oh, I want people to be able to see it and whatever. I'm going to rework this, you know, for the future and people know that. And then a little while ago on Twitter, I started seeing this Medium post being shared that was called uh, Who's Afraid of Sally Binford? And I was like, who's writing about Sally Binford? Is this something new? Like, what's going on? And I read it and my heart kind of sank because the Medium post, um, which is by a, a man who I'm not going to name, um, uh, who's an archaeologist, it, while it was not word for word my work, it was structured very similarly to my work. It used all of the same sources and heavily relied on mm. observations I had made in my article. And did not mention me or my work at all uh, until someone called him out on it on Twitter and privately. And then he edited it to basically put a sentence saying, like, this would not be possible without Liz Quinlan's, you know, conference paper. It's like, not um, no. And then sent me an article. Sent, yeah. And sent me, an, sent me a message on academia.edu kind of covering his tracks and saying he'd been thinking about writing this for a long time. And I gave him the inspiration and it just, it really annoyed me because I had been planning on releasing a medium or similar style, like, like mm -hmm. public article along with my published one to like coordinate that. And for science communication purposes. Um, but now when you search for Sally Benford, that, that medium article is the first thing that comes up. Which is um, unfair on many, so many, many levels. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. So it's it's frustrating. Um, there's really not much I can do because it, anybody can publish a Medium article. I've done it. Um, it's it's fine. Um, I just, you know, 
I actually confront, I had to confront this in, in, I was teaching, I taught archeological theory this semester and um, some of the other sections, the students, they were given the option to do um, a, um, a paper on a short, a short paper on an archeologist. And some of them chose Mm -hmm. Sally Binford and all of them were referencing this medium article. So we had to kind of like tell them like, that's not a reliable source. It's, you know, like you need to do this. And I actually shared my, my, my in-print article with them so that they could use it for the purpose of that, you know, class project. How can we support Um, then? I mean, this just, it's another example, unfortunately, of somebody else taking, and in this case, ironically, a man taking a woman's research, making it his own um, after your hard work. How can we support your research so like can we access your presentation um can we purchase the article when it comes out like what can we do to help support the wonderful research you've done on sally benford yeah i mean the the much of what i've written about her is honestly coming from this this amazing janet klinger interview so janet klinger really did the work um but the the other part of my article is a kind of meta-analysis of um how Sally's experiences um, and her complex religious, political, and sexual identities contributed to her ostracization from the discipline, but also how they guided her ethical approach to archaeology. Um, and also, I'm really interested in where we can learn about. So, so I kind of go through the, the article goes through um, this phenomena of uncredited mm-hmm. work. Um, which was formalized in Margaret Rossiter's 1993 exploration of the Matthew slash Matilda effect. Um, that's a that's where um, the work of influential scientific men is directly attributed to their unpublished or otherwise disenfranchised mm. wives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that like analytical lens. I'm looking at things through that, and then also looking at kind of the ethical duty of care for graduate organizations, universities, and professional organizations to graduate students and early career researchers about negotiating Mm. authorship and negotiating collaboration, because this is not something that is codified or like, you know, structured Mm. in many ways. It tends to be something like, oh, you and your supervisor bring that up and and you work that out. Yeah, but sometimes it's your supervisor. Exactly. Exactly. And so my argument is that archaeologists need to expand their discussion of ethics to their responsibilities to students and early career researchers, as well as not just, you know, the ethical concerns of research, Um, especially when they're working with people who are in higher positions of academic power. So I use Sally's experiences and her truncated career prospects um, to expand how we talk about ethics and citation, collaboration and mentorship. Um, so that's the the real focus of that of this mm-hmm. article. Um, I do a, a review of um, authorship guidelines from um, graduate uh, handbooks from schools across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. And basically, none of them oh, mention them. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, and I also review different organizations, um, and and it's really just mm-hmm. not a thing. Um, like journals have things about determining authorship. And a lot of times hard sciences, like more STEM fields tend to have a little more like this, this technician should be listed in this position on this 17 author article. But in archaeology, we're not always dealing with, you know, lab work type stuff. And it could be a little more fuzzy of, okay, but how should the elders that I consulted be 
like mm-hmm. credited? How should graduate students who were working in my lab, you know, cataloging ceramics be credited? How should the, you know, um, archaeologists that hired from South America who are not part of my university, but I had to hire them. How should mm-hmm. they be credited? These are, so. it sounds like incredibly important things to think about. And honestly, things I have not considered myself. So, and, and you said this is going to be further discussed in the upcoming article. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the article is called, it's chapter three of this, um, this edited uh, manuscript volume, um, which is going to be published, hopefully, um, by the, um, in the archaeological papers of the American Anthropological Association. It's under review mm-hmm. right now. Um, and my chapter is called, And His Wife ah! Sally, The Binford Legacy and Uncredited Work in Archaeology. That's incredible. Um, and uh, will people be able to, once it, once everything's published, view it online at that website? Yes. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's going to be open access. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but like if someone were to need to see it for some reason, I'm sure there's a way that they could see it by wink, wink, contacting somebody whose name might rhyme with is Linlin. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to share resources. And Sadly, we are at the end of our segment. This has been an incredible, incredible episode. I really thank you so much for um, talking to Chelsea and I about the incredible life of Sally Benford. And it sounds like she's been a true source of inspiration for you about all of these issues of of, of authorship and uh, credit and so many different things. There's so much, so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, so I, I mentioned I've been in contact with Susie Bright, who is a, a, a longtime friend of Sally's. And um, uh, I mentioned to Susie, like, one of the things that made me want to really look into Sally was, you know, I am a young queer woman working in archaeology and seeing someone who had experiences like I had who, you know, obviously different time, different place. I'm not Jewish. I didn't deal with that aspect of, of marginalization, but um, seeing that and being able to say, oh my gosh, like these are things that people were thinking about and she didn't get her chance to really change the field mm-hmm. like she could have. So what I got to do something. Um, so yeah, that's, it, it's always been, you know, ever since I was like on Tumblr in 2009 and like, you know, shit posting about how much I love <laughs> Sally Benford. This has been at the back of my head. Like I really, I just, I'm so, I learned so much more about her and um, yeah, I'm, I'm so, I cannot wait until that broadcast comes. I will willingly <laughs> listen to Watergate transcripts for Sally Benford. Wonderful. <laughs> that is, that's incredible. And it, it shows, I, I think for our fellow archeologists that there is a wealth of information to learn, not only about Sally Benford, but many, many other archeologists that may have been overshadowed for a variety of reasons. And Liz, thank you so much for coming exactly. on the podcast. We would absolutely love to have you come on again. Yeah, this was amazing. Well, I hopefully, you know, knock, knock, I'll finish my PhD someday and we can talk about it. I would love salmon. that. You know, <laughs> a, a, a little Sally Benford, a little salmon, you can't go wrong. It's good. Absolutely. <laughs> and listeners, thank you for listening. If you um, want to hear other 
other episodes. Uh, we are we have tons of episodes available on womeninarchaeology.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @womenarchies. And if you are interested in coming on the podcast or you have ideas for us to cover, you can contact us at womeninarchaeology@gmail.com. Thank you for listening and be well. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.